Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law at Peking University. My name is Stephen Minas. I'm an associate professor at the school. And in this episode, we are discussing a central aspect of the current global response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the development and distribution of vaccines against COVID-19. The vaccination of a large majority of the population is absolutely vital to meeting the challenge of this pandemic. And that makes public confidence in vaccines a key prerequisite for ending this pandemic. Part of the challenge of building up and nurturing this public confidence is ensuring that appropriate support is available for the small minority of people who experience severe adverse reactions to vaccination. To discuss this, I was joined by Dr. Duncan Fairgreave, who is Professor of Comparative Law at the Université Paris-Dauphine and Senior Research Fellow in Comparative Law and Director of the Product Liability Forum at the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Duncan is also a barrister at the Bar of England and Wales and an advocate before the Paris Bar and is both a comparative lawyer and an expert in product liability and compensation schemes, uh, was very well placed indeed to offer his insights on the development of COVID-19 vaccine injury compensation programs, both at national level, but also internationally. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. Delighted to be with you. Now, if we look at the, the various aspects of this pandemic and the legal response uh, to the pandemic, vaccines and vaccination are now, of course, at the top of the priority. Um, you come to this question from a very interesting angle because you've been working on questions of product liability and compensation in the past as well. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you're examining these questions of vaccination and, and the background that you bring to this topic. Yeah, sure. I'd be delighted to do that. I mean, I've been working on products, regulation of products, um, and also liability in relation to products when things go wrong for, for a long time. And within the spectrum of different products, that are on, you know, that are consumed or on the market or what have you, there are very, you know, different types of, of, of products. Um, you have sort of, you know, consumer products, everyday products, which are subject to regulations, obviously. But you also have a sort of tied categories of products which are highly regulated because of their nature. And that can cover quite a disparate category of products, but it includes medicinal uh, products, healthcare products particularly, uh, and they're quite an interesting area from a products perspective because of that dimension, that they are subject to um, lots of regulation, both pre preventive, both pre um, prior to going onto the market, uh, whilst they're on the market as well in terms of monitoring and surveillance as the product, you know, during the life cycle, if you like, of the product. And then there's the ex post facto point that you just picked up on, which is the compensation aspect, which is if something goes wrong, obviously, you know, regulations there to prevent things going wrong or reducing the risks of going wrong. But if things do go wrong, what is the response of the law in relation to people, persons, consumers who are affected? And so 
vaccines sit within that kind of overview, if you like. But I think vaccines actually have a sort of degree of characteristics which make them quite um, specific uh, and unique. I mean, not only are they medicinal products, um, healthcare, so they're subject to all the regulations we all become experts on now, right? We didn't know about uh, probably um, uh, a, uh, a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, but now we've all become you know, following this very closely with the regulatory regime, the, the authorization of the med medicines regulators, the various medicines regulators, MHRA in the UK, the FDA in, uh, in the US, CMA in, uh, in Europe, and, 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 and most jurisdictions have their own uh, regulators. So subject to that authorization process, which itself then is, has all sorts of particularities, clinical trials, which of course we all follow quite closely and et cetera, before prior to the actual authorization. So vaccines sit within that, already within that sort of um, highly regulated um, environment. But also there are particularities of this particular pandemic, which of course means that they are not only medicinal products, but they are actually um, being developed very quickly for emergency use as well. So I think that also adds, another, if you like, another, another dimension to this whole area. Uh, and also the aspect that I think is picked up on, but maybe not talked about as much uh, as the other aspects, which is that the vaccines which have been used, particularly in Europe and North America, are actually products of a very new technology, a new technological approach. The technology behind the messenger development is, is relatively new as well. And so that adds another aspect, I think, of potential complication as well in terms of the regulatory dimension and also the public acceptance of the product as well, you know, which is, is their final kind of characteristic I'll flag up, of course, is this is a product or series of products, a category of products, probably more accurate because you know, there are obviously several different COVID-19 vaccines, but which will be and are at the moment being administered to large numbers of the population, ultimately you know, the whole of the globe in a relatively short time scale, right? And I think that's very rare for a product, think about it, that a particular type of product developed you know from a starting point in essence is then going to be administered into such large numbers of people so quickly uh, I think that adds another dimension of complication to the, the overall backdrop regulatory backdrop indeed and some of those factors that you mentioned particularly the newness of the mRNA technology the the speed and the breadth of the rollout of vaccines and uh, and other matters uh, has fed this challenge of vaccine hesitancy, uh, at, at least in countries which are fortunate enough to have a significant supply of vaccines. But what I would ask you is, how do these regulatory frameworks that you've been studying, both around the approval of vaccines, but also the provision of compensation and other frameworks, how can these address the pressing public health challenge of encouraging as many people as possible to get vaccinated with the available supply? And that's a good question. Um, and it's a sort of question that um, public health specialists 
regulators and lawyers have been grappling with over the last you know, year and a half is, of course, that one of the challenges not, is not only producing the product, but convincing people to, that it's safe and that that uh, that it should be taken uh, and thereby you know protecting the population and um, being able to deal with, with with the pandemic and i think that the reality is and we can't i don't think we can flinch from the reality that medicines healthcare products have you know involve risks there is a risk benefit profile of these products and I think it's important to be, you know, transparent as far as possible and to explain the processes which have um, been undertaken in order to make sure that that benefit risk is firmly in the benefit side. In other words, that the products are, are safe. Again, we've all sort of discovered quite a lot of aspects of the regulatory process over the last 18 months you know those that knew very little about it but seeing how that process is designed uh the extensive clinical phase the extensive role of the regulator with, with um great expertise in this area and the way in which they've interacted with the actual manufacturers and the producers and the regulatory process itself has been designed to ensure that the um, the testing and the analysis of that risk benefit is is undertaken in a thorough way, but you know there are risks in in such products, and um, they are very small. The occurrence of adverse events in relation to vaccines are um, very rare. Uh, most side effects, obviously, are um, transitory cause a degree of discomfort obviously um, but don't impact on on one's health in those very very rare cases where something more serious can occur you know with the, there is a public policy issue in relation to that and myself and a number of um, academics not just lawyers uh, lawyers working with um, regulators public health specialists, historians of medicine as well, and social scientists. Right at the start of the pandemic, so over a year ago, uh, we looked at the, in the round, the issues, the historical precedents, the social uh, science dimension, the ethical aspects as well, and uh, looked at what the provision was in those, again, very limited, very rare cases, much more, obviously much more rare than the actual um, pathogen that one is dealing with, but nonetheless there, where there isn't that serious um, adverse reaction. What is the actual reaction, as it were? What is the policy response in relation to that? Because another characteristic of vaccines, I didn't say some minutes ago, but it may be worth just articulating another aspect about that vaccines which make them different to other medicines and partly can sometimes generate a bit of concern is that they are they're taken in a preventative way it's not a medicine that one is taking to deal with a pre-existing condition uh, one is taking to inoculate oneself from the the pathogen and so um, to add to that 
not only is it preventive in that sense, but actually in many cases, particularly in relation to certain sectors of the population as we've seen in this pandemic, is that it actually is an altruistic, to a certain extent, an altruistic act as well, in that it's not just personal benefit one is gaining in terms of you know, generating the necessary antibodies, et cetera, but one is also, there's a, a societal benefit reducing transmission, protecting others and oneself. And um, as I said a minute ago, that I think is very, very acute in relation to particular types of the parts of the population, particularly young people in relation to COVID-19, who obviously subject to a much lower risk. I mean, it's not nil, but it's very low, who, as we can see now in Israel, in Europe, etc., it's very important as a high take-up, even amongst younger persons, in order to reduce down the transmission and reduce the risk both to them, smaller, but also to those who are more exposed to that risk. And so that's what I mean by there's an altruistic element to it, a societal element that one is not just sort of concerned about one's own health, but the actual broader uh, public interest as well. And I think that makes it specific, the vaccine as a product, and that has also generated policy responses which are also specific as well throughout the history of vaccination. The notion that it's important to encourage general take-up of it has meant that therefore there's been generally a particular policy response to those circumstances where people have a, a bad reaction to vaccination, the sort of the adverse reaction side effects that we were just talking about earlier on. And throughout history, there has been a particular approach to that. For I think understandable reasons we just looked at, there's an ethical dimension, not just the sort of there's a legal policy, but I think there's quite a strong ethical dimension as well, which, which underpins the need to take a specific approach to this sort of area than, for example, to other areas of general, med med general medicines or you know, other complex products that one may come across. Yes, and as you've alluded to, of course, these are challenges that have been faced before in the context of other diseases and other vaccination programs. So if we think about the necessity of a broadly subscribed COVID vaccination program and the trade-offs that you were mentioning, particularly the social benefit of convincing as many people as possible uh, to take the vaccine, then what lessons can we draw from previous uh, vaccination programs and, and compensation schemes that have been put in place for them? Uh, I think you've written with colleagues that uh, this, uh, this pandemic cannot entirely uh, be met with uh, the pre-existing regulatory frameworks here. So if you could just tell us a bit about what uh, liability schemes existed in the past and, and perhaps why the COVID pandemic requires a bespoke approach? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the, 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 the particularity we've just discussed of, of vaccines meant that there have been pre-existing schemes that were set up historically, go back actually sort of 60s, 1970s, one saw that the developments in France, in in Scandinavia as well, and then North America, where the sort of dimension that we just discussed, a policy ethical dimension, meant that there was a, a recognition, therefore, that the, that the state 
had to cater and provide support and compensation for those rare small number, but nonetheless um, significant um, number or, or the, you know, identifiable number with significant consequences, provided compensation and support for those that had suffered a side effect and the consequences of that um, subsequent to vaccination. And so a number of schemes were set up, and this is one of an area, I'm a comparative lawyer, uh, it's one of these interesting areas where um, one can see a very similar policy response in lots of different countries um, with the setting up of, of compensation schemes, in essence, providing monetary support for those that have, and their families, of course, that have suffered adverse reactions. And so those schemes were was set up in a number of different countries. Um, our focus initially was on the UK, UK system, which I can say a word about. Um, but then since then, this has become a much more global issue for, for the you know, reasons we discussed early on, that these products are, you know, there's no frontiers for these products, in essence. I mean, certain products, certain vaccines are administered in particular countries, et cetera. But, but they, they, they are being marketed in multiple jurisdictions. All of them are marketed and administered in multiple jurisdictions. And so as, as a consequence of that, um, there has been a, a setting a recognition that these, these schemes are, are unnecessary. Uh, and, and yet the schemes um, are actually quite different. And to say a word initially about the UK scheme, part of the work myself and colleagues did in spring last year was to um, articulate the fact that, you know, hopefully at that stage, obviously we had no idea whether vaccines were going to be produced or not. They, some of them were in advanced state in terms of the clinical trials. We, we wrote a series of papers um, and an article in The Lancet to alert the policymakers to the fact that in the UK, that stage we're focused on the UK, but on, in relation to the UK, the scheme, the, the vaccine compensation scheme, which had been set up in the late 1970s, we felt was inadequate in relation to the challenges of COVID-19 vaccines. And I had worked in the past and been very critical of the scheme, um, the pre-existing scheme, Vaccine Damage Payments Act was the legislation which brought the, the scheme into existence. Uh, and been very critical of that. With, the, with this group, we felt that it was necessary to improve upon that, to, to develop a bespoke scheme to provide adequate compensation to the, any persons who were affected. And we thought that this was an important, not just a sort of important equitable principle for the sort of reasons we discussed a minute ago, but also important in terms of public acceptance of the product in the sense that if you're trying to encourage people to encourage take up of the product, that it was important also to have a dimension which recognised that if there were risks, albeit very, very small risks, but nonetheless there were, there, there were risks, the product overall was absolutely safe and was doing, you know, going to do good work, etc. But if there were small risks, those small risks were covered off adequately. And in this sense, what I mean by covered off 
adequately is to provide support. And we didn't feel that was what was uh, going to be provided under the existing scheme. Um, the UK government decided, I think it was in late 20, last year, 2020, um, decided to extend the pre-existing scheme to cover COVID-19 and vaccines. And that, that that's the position we're in now. Uh, and I think that's a shame. I think it was a, there was a, you know, it's an opportunity. I'm not sure that's exactly the right terminology, but there was a possibility to use the, this as a means to ameliorate the pre-existing scheme, which I, I've, I'm not sure if anyone really defends, to be honest with you. I never really come across anyone who's defended the UK scheme, predominantly because it was set up as just a sort of temporary measure in the 1970s to become, become permanent, but it was set up as a, just a temporary measure. And, and so there was an opportunity to, to do this uh, in, in a better way. I don't think that opportunity is, by the way, is passed now. It can still be, you know, still be part of the public policy response, could be to improve upon the scheme and to provide... Uh, adequate compensation. I, I think some of the, the, the factual cases of people who've been affected are very stark in the UK, include people who were you know, young, a, young, a young doctor who was administered, who took the vaccine very early on because he was a frontline worker in, the, in January, February um, of this year and sadly died of a of um, thrombosis, which is now recognised, very, very rare, recognised side effect. Uh, and cases like that, where one sees, you know, a, a very much an altruistic act, a frontline worker, a young frontline worker who is not subject to, you know, a, a high degree of risk in relation to the uh, coronavirus itself, but who took the vaccine in order to reduce down, you know, to protect his patients, in effect, reduce transmission, etc. And I don't think it's acceptable, uh, the current position, which is a relatively modest amount of money, um, lump sum, is acceptable for that, you know, that sort of person who left, you know, who sort of dedicated um, his life as a frontline worker, um, did the right thing and um, lost his life. Uh, and he had three dependents, his wife and two young children. Um, so there's some really stark factual situations out there, and I think it wouldn't, you know, that it, it would be possible to improve the scheme even now uh, and, and do the right thing. And so that's what we've been trying to advocate through the work uh, with my colleagues. But I think there's also, you adverted to it a minute ago, there's a broader dimension, which is the, you know, the international uh, dimension, which is also quite interesting as well. Indeed, and examples like that, of course just underline that these aren't abstract questions, but of course, these are, there are deeply human consequences to what uh, arrangements are in place by way of compensation and, and also by way of, of how user-friendly, if that's the right term, a scheme is. Uh, does it put through people through the ringer or does it, does it uh, focus on, on delivering uh, the best outcome possible in often tragic uh, circumstances? Uh, Duncan, as, as you mentioned, there are a number of different approaches uh, to liability that have been taken. I, I think most people would agree that some kind of no-fault uh, uh, compensation scheme is, is better than pushing people through the courts to take their chances in a negligence claim. But of course, there are many different ways to design uh, a no-fault scheme. 
Uh, you've spoken a bit about the UK example. Uh, looking around the world, are there COVID uh, vaccine compensation schemes that, that you think might be uh, positive examples of, of reform that is that is rising to this challenge? Yeah, I mean, there's a, the, the, the whole series of, of, of schemes which pre-existed, um, uh, France is an example of that, a pre-existing scheme, but also in Scandinavia as well, one of the earlier, you know, the earlier, a great tradition, obviously, as well, of using no-fault schemes. And, and since the start of the pandemic, uh, there have been um, a whole number of new schemes set up. So in Canada, there's, in, in Canada, there was a, at a province level in Quebec, there was already a pre-existing scheme, but there wasn't one at the federal level. So there's a, that's go, ongoing at the moment, a development of a, of a scheme in Canada. I understand also in Australia as well, there is um, there are plans to set up schemes, and then many other jurisdictions as well. There are fourteen or fifteen new schemes which have been set up. But the one I, I suppose I would I would refer to as an interesting example is the Covax WHO scheme, which was set up as a as an initiative as part of the Covax procurement of vaccines for quite a large number of low-income countries, about 90, I think, 1995 different countries. And as part of that procurement effort, Javi, um, WHO, and others decided that it was important to have a comp an international compensation scheme set up uh, in parallel. And they went about it very, you know, in, a, in, in an amazingly efficient with way um, set up, it started operation, I think in March of this year. So from a standing start almost in, in about a year, they've developed a scheme, which I think is interesting on a number of levels. I mean, first point is it's an international scheme, right? So I think it's very, obviously a very unusual example of a personal injury style, no fault scheme at an international level, applying to, you know, all the potential countries operation this for the actual vaccine distribution as well. So that's a huge challenge which they managed to surmount. That also is quite interesting the methodology that they've used, both in terms of some of the substantive conditions as well that you know the sort of uh, what one needs to show, but also the point you just made a minute ago, Stephen, which is about process as well, which I think as you correctly identified, it's it's hugely important, not just about the, the circumstances which you can allocate the compensation is how you do it as well, particularly in difficult circumstances for those that are affected. And that's a, a particular flaw, I think, of the UK scheme, uh, but other maybe other pre-existing schemes as well, is that the, the process is not always that good. And, and the WHO and the COVAX scheme, they have thought a lot um, very carefully about the about that process, trying to make it streamlined as possible online, and you know, quite a in, in, ingenious approach in terms of their how how they calculate the the, the compensation and the, the medical experts, etc., um, which they've done um, at, you know in a short period of time as well. So I think that's a scheme which is really interesting can provide lessons, I think, for other schemes as well. I mean, it's not just that one, there are other interesting developments as well in other areas. But I think it's a good example of one where try to bring together uh, what we can do with modern technology 
um, and provide an equitable system which work relatively swiftly, swiftly as possible to provide support for people who are affected. Indeed, and, and that uh, I think um, the COVAX scheme builds itself as the first such international program that exists. So it's it's not taking an existing model, but it's really inventing something new for, for these uh, unprecedented circumstances. And I think that scheme, but also the national schemes that we've discussed, uh, are all having to face a set of questions, the answers to which are not obvious. Uh, where does the money come from for the scheme? Uh, how broad is the coverage? What, what events trigger uh, compensation? Uh, of course, how much compensation is to be provided? Is it a, an emergency measure or is it a semi-permanent uh, mechanism? And of course, we're now one and a half years into a pandemic, which is not going away anytime soon. Uh, but then uh, one thing which I also find interesting is the position of the vaccine manufacturers and, and how these schemes relate uh, to them. And I guess what's very important here is that we maintain an incentive to invest in vaccines and, and to continue the, the process and, and perhaps without the fear of multi-billion euro uh, claims. And, and in this context, I think it was interesting that the EU's contract with AstraZeneca, which was published in, in very interesting circumstances, did indemnify AstraZeneca for adverse consequences of use of that vaccine. Perhaps you could comment on, on the position on manufacturers and how these indemnity schemes are important, also from keeping the process of technology development and, uh, and rollout uh, going. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I, I, I totally agree what you say. Obviously, um, it's thanks to the efforts, obviously, of, uh, of manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies, but also the public sector, often research um, uh, institutes as well, uh, for example, with AstraZeneca, you've mentioned AstraZeneca, the Oxford University vaccine uh, group, um, but then teaming up with um, pharmaceutical um, companies to be able to produce and then distribute these effectively. So it's been a, many of these have been a sort of collaborative effort, in a sense, where they've been set up by for-profit entities. Often those for-profit entities have, have, have been um, recipients of vast sums of money to assist with either the, the, the research or the scale-up in terms of the clinical trials and the clinical trials and the production. So there has been a public-private collaboration um, in order to actually get these products to market and, and I agree exactly what you say that in a, in, one needs to encourage innovation without innovation we wouldn't have these products we wouldn't have this sort of potential exit route or um, at least uh, ability to ameliorate the, the pandemic so that's very important the contractual dimension I think um, is interesting as well and you adverted to the supply contracts and um, it is true that in many of the contract supply contracts, the public purse has taken uh, a, a, a great degree of the risk in, in relation to these products. What I mean by that is that the public purse obviously is financing, is purchasing the products, but is also as you correctly identified, is indemnifying the manufacturers against 
potential claims uh, and you know in uh, in an area of all the features we've just discussed earlier on the emergency aspect the new technology the rollout don't accept all of that obviously can increase risk to the manufacturer in terms of potential litigation arising from the the use of the products whether that is as you said a sort of kind of negligence style claim or product liability style no fault probability style claim and so the manufacturers were keen to ensure that that risk was uh, was covered and so um, in the contracts we've seen to be made public including the AstraZeneca European Commission contract you referred to uh, there was a transfer to the public purse of those risks of adverse effects um, with very little um, exceptions actually only in case of uh, egregious fault by the manufacturer, fraud, etc. So what that means is, in effect, is that a great degree of the risks uh, is uh, borne by the, 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 the public purse. And if anything, that makes it even more important. It's another factor over and above the ethical public policy discussion we had a minute ago about why it's important to have a, a compensation scheme properly funded, properly um, resourced and, and proficiently working, why it's important for those schemes to uh, exist, not just from the ethical, but also some practical perspectives, which is that actually it's much better to avoid litigation, uh, as you said a minute ago, to try and encourage what is a form of ADR, alternative dispute resolution, in, in other words, to go to a the scheme, which will be quicker, um, it's a swifter approach to gain a much less difficult than having to fight this issue for the courts. And also, of course, taking out all those transaction costs of litigating, you know, the court time, paying lawyers, etc., which ultimately are going to be borne by, as we've just seen from the contractual arrangement, the public purse anyway. So it reinforces the... Um, you know, the, the desire to have a proper system and to encourage therefore people not to, you know, not to resort to litigation, but in, instead have that. Problem is in the UK is that that's, you know, that I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, again, going back to just one example, I appreciate you've got an international audience, but as an example, the UK, I think the scheme is generally considered not to be providing the right response. And so therefore, ultimately, and it's the last thing anyone wants, obviously those who are affected, the commentators, public sector, you know, for the litigation to rise out of this. But I mean, if the, if the scheme is not, is not providing an effective remedy, that is the risk. And that will be ultimately borne, as we've seen from the contractual arrangements by the public purse. So it actually doesn't make any sense to have a scheme which doesn't work. You know, having a scheme which is not fit for purpose ultimately is just going to generate more costs as well as angst and the inequitable approach obviously to those that have been affected and sending out the wrong messages going back to us you know what we said at the start sending out completely the wrong messages in terms of vaccine hesitancy you, you know we want to encourage acceptance and show that if something does go wrong even though it's a very rare risk Something goes wrong, you'll be looked after because of the altruistic nature of the product, etc. So, because it sends out, you're not a scheme which doesn't work, sends out all the wrong signals. Uh, and so, again, you go back to the COVAX, WHO scheme, where 
the whole scheme is geared up to function swiftly, provide rapid responses, etc. So I think a much better, it's much more aligned that with the overall health message that one wants to achieve, which is obviously to you know to encourage people to take up. Um, to explain about the very, very small risk, and if, if ultimately there is any risk that, you know, one would be provided for, and that seems to me as sort of the optimal solution. But at the same time, you know, one has to recognise that there's a lot of competing considerations on the public purse, right, over the, over the whole, you know, and, and very complex issues to deal with. Uh, particularly in the eye of the storm, you know, all the, the regulatory dimension, the uh, getting the the PPE, the personal protective equipment, etc. So a lot of things to deal with. So I totally understand that on the public um, policy perspective, there's a lot of demands. But now we're in a situation where you know things are more under control. I think this is an area. This is an area where, which is in the UK, talking about where it's problematic and solution it really needs to be. There needs to be a better response, and that can be done. Um, I think you know relatively swiftly won't be hugely costly either because of the very limited numbers of people affected, but hugely important for those that have been affected and just need support. Yes, that's right. And I, I take your point also about the, the fact that the public purse is under pressure like never before in many countries. But I think we've also seen during this pandemic that saving money does not always save money. And whether that's haggling over the price of vaccines or not investing in proper quarantine facilities, et cetera, but that's, that's another discussion. Um, Duncan, one final question, if I may. Uh, we are deep into the second year of the pandemic. Is looking back on what we've discussed, are there any lessons that you would draw uh, for the further handling of the COVID pandemic and perhaps for future crises that, that relate to questions of vaccination? Good question. I, mean, I, think, I think we need to learn less, a lesson to learn. Should we, we should learn lessons because H1N1 10 years or so ago um, was a bit of a wake-up call uh, or should have been a bit of a wake-up call, particularly in relation to vaccination and the uh, inadequacies of the system, etc., and the procurement difficulties. There were a whole host of constructive but nonetheless critical reports by the European Commission, by the Council of Europe, about the, the problems, inherent problems that were experienced during that, albeit quite limited for the for Europe anyway, health problem. Uh, and I think it was the Council of Europe Assembly report which said rather ominously that this problem's not going to go away, pandemics, and next time around it might be more complicated. Uh, and I don't think we did learn from H1N1. I think some of the issues that were discussed in during that, we see those, you know, the same sort of issues now coming out at the current, during the current um, pandemic. And so... I think it's important once we've emerged from the storm to develop resilience of the system. Obviously, more generally, it's important, you know, whether it's a scientific response, sort of issues you were just relating to as well. But I think part of that needs to be also in relation to this area as well, in relation to vaccine the procurement process has worked relatively well. One that aspect which hasn't done so well is the these schemes. Uh, and that would be a legacy, positive legacy going ahead as well. Um, the, the lessons that can be learned from these schemes, I think more generally, 
in terms of reducing litigation, reducing litigation costs, ensuring swift response to those that are affected by these sort of incidents. So the more general benefit that could be generated from, you know, from dealing with these issues. And the final point, I'm a comparative lawyer, so a kind of a, a plea from a comparative lawyer, which I think is the importance of learning lessons from elsewhere. Um, and, and that, you know, that is occurring. The COVAX scheme was inspired by the Swedish model. You know, this is an area where we can look to others, other examples, international examples, which is why I'm working with a number of international experts to try and you know, identify what the features are of the schemes, um, because that can be used then at a national level when you know, new schemes be setting up or improving on the pre-existing scheme like in, in the UK. Well, this, this is a topic of the, the highest priority. So Duncan, thank you very much for your insights today. Thank you, Stephen. Great pleasure.